welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode of the podcast, I interview Patrick Cody, a.k.a. Pat the Burner. He's a leftist activist, co-host of the Punch-Up Pod, and author of Political Parodies, An Inconvenient Douche, and The Yass Queen Chronicles. On the pod, we talk about politics and keep it pretty real. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. Co-host of the Punch Up Pod and author. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, it is uh, great to be here. And fair warning, I just came off my show, and we always have a little booze. So, uh, if you're checking my intellectual acumen, I might be a couple IQ points higher than it's going to come across. <laughs> Tell me. So, what you guys talk about on the show tonight? Tell me about the. Uh, I did interview uh, your co-host a couple weeks back. We had a great time, talked a lot about Hollywood and just uh, the writer's strike and the, and the theme, um, right. just generally, um, you know, about Hollywood movies and, and the culture out there. Uh, Lila Charles Lee, she was a great guest. So tell me about the Punch-Up Pod for maybe people that haven't listened to that episode or haven't checked out your show. Right on. Well, uh, Lila, she's brilliant. She's the, uh, the sharper of the two of us for sure. Uh, she's kind of the person that does all her homework and I'm kind of the guy that just shows up and like kind of wings it. And it's a good balance, I think for the show, but uh, she talked me into doing the show because we were kind of both in the same level. We're both people that fought hard for Bernie Sanders in 2016, both, both uh, hardcore leftists and both kind of disillusioned with, with uh, both political parties. And uh, we kind of just wanted a, an outlet to rally people around where we feel politically uh, point out a lot of the propaganda in the media, kind of getting people more on board with not putting all their faith in electoral politics and, and doing shit outside of the, the system. So, yeah. uh, so we'll, we'll, as far as what we talked about, um, you know, we got into uh, climate, the economy, uh, little touched on, touched on 2024. We, as much as we hate electoral politics, it points out a lot of the flaws in, in the democratic party. So, you know, we always cover what's going on with it. And uh, COVID, of course, we, we both cover COVID and, you know, most people think it's, it's kind of benign and over and, um, you know, we have a platform and I, I'm using it hopefully responsibly to point out that we're, we're still in a lot of risk and our government isn't doing anything to, to support us. So, Yeah, cases yeah. are up. I saw in Texas a whole, I think it was a whole district uh, canceled um class for the week uh the rest of the week because of just massive uh outbreaks so covid's not going away uh anytime soon might be with us for quite some time and uh i guess have you ever have you read some of the environmental stuff i mean sometimes you read this environmental stuff with the um 
you know, with the rising of the sea temperatures and with the, you know, the catastrophic storms we're getting, I think someone had talked about down here in Texas uh, at one point a few years back, there was like 300-year storms in a row. How about that kind of look? Right. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, you know, but then also like with the ice caps melting and new bacteria, I read an article about um, some like worm, <laughs> some like ancient worm that was frozen for like 50,000 years that they were uh, uh, able to to bring back to life and all these different viruses that could be uh, could have been frozen in these ice caps for tens of thousands of years. So I think there's a real potential with the climate crisis and the changing of uh, you know the ecosystems and that sort of stuff. Uh, this could just be the first taste of many future uh, global pandemics to come. I mean, it really is going to be. And you know, if I mean, I don't know if you saw the movie "Don't Look Up" by. Uh... David Sirota, one of the the authors, writers for it, but uh, it's really kind of absurd just how the mainstream media and the, and the corporate press is just largely ignoring all the risks in front of us. And and so you could look at the pandemic and say, well, how do we respond? Well, the the media is just acting like it's over. So they're talking about, well, what happens when we get the next one? And you know, if you if you look at the track record, we're not past this one for one. Um, and you know, what is the response? I mean, the response was to put it all on Trump, like Trump's an idiot and he, he blew it all and we're all unsafe. I think he did though. When he got in there, I think he did like, um, I think he literally tore down the, the pandemic task force or something like that. So, I mean, he definitely did a lot of terrible things. No question about that. But but the question would be what's Biden, uh, doing and what did Obama do? I'm no expert on, you know, health policy on the federal level but I, I mean there's no doubt trump did some terrible things but the system in place a capitalist for-profit medical system we don't really plan for uh pandemics and catastrophic events and you know i talked to on several people about just healthcare in general we don't want to have you know 50 extra beds in a hospital sitting around we want to always be right around capacity just like you know a hotel we don't want to have a bunch of empty rooms we want to be at full capacity all the time and if that's the way this healthcare system is going to be run when we get some changes uh or when we get some disasters when we get a pandemic all of a sudden we got to bring cruise boats into uh new york harbor to set up makeshift hospitals which is absurd yeah, and I mean, and that's what that's what we've run into. That's you know, obviously Trump was awful, and you know, uh, the the main thing is we need to dis disassociate the idea that the Democratic Party is going to be hero- heroic in these areas, and they're they're not. They may be significantly different, but they're not really our allies. They do things when they're forced to publicly enough, is what it comes down to. I mean, you, you take a look at. Uh, Medicare for all, something that the Democratic Party espouses as one of their values, at least in California, it's literally on their platform to pass Medicare for all. Like it's written into the the Democratic charter in the state. And we're a perfect example that, you know, most of the U.S. thinks we're like this liberal bastion of lefties. You know, we're all a bunch of hippies running around trying to give give away everything. Uh, But the reality is, you know, us activists, we, we put a lot of pressure on all the the Congress people in the state, and we got their support on paper to pass the damn thing. The state version of Medicare for all SB, uh, geez, it's been so long. I forget what the number is, but SB some number. Um, we couldn't, you know, we had the support. If they brought it to a vote, it would have passed and they would have had to pass it. And they had a democratic 
supermajority, so they couldn't be overruled by Democrat by Republicans. And so they use these, these backdoor pathways to kill the bill. So so it, it never came up for a vote. And and that's the summary of the Democratic Party is they they pre- pretend they're on your side. They largely are on your side on social issues uh, because that's a way to differentiate themselves from the right. But when it comes to corporate interests, they've got the same values and they're beholden to the medical uh, pharmaceutical industry every bit as much as the right. Yeah, I mean, I think we have we have one party. It's a one party state, the business party. Um, the only difference is, you know, what factions of that business party, it seems like, um, you know, because uh, Republicans um, are a lot of the time uh, climate deniers, um, but, you know, not much different with Biden passing record amounts of drilling permits and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, uh, you know, some rhetoric is, is definitely definitely different. Um, the policies are very, very similar. Sometimes you need a microscope uh, to see differences um, between the two platforms. And a lot of times, uh, Obama, maybe we can talk about your radicalization. Uh, I even saw Obama speak um, when he was running um, his first campaign. I guess that was against McCain. Um, you know, it's a senator nobody heard of. He had a lot of great rhetoric. He seemed like he was about hope and change. But what we found out is that was, again, just rhetoric. Uh, this hopey, changey stuff uh, didn't really mean much. And I'm a big Chomsky fan. I read a lot of his books. If you ever, ever listen to my podcast, uh, you know, that's a, that's a lot of my inspiration. Um, but Chomsky was right on it from the get-go. He said, just go to Obama's, um, you know, website. There's not much on there. There's not much on there about whatever, you know, student loan forgiveness or expanding Social Security or Medicare for all. None of that. It was a lot of good rhetoric and he got a lot of people fired up. But when he got in office, uh, people were excited and thought he was going to do, um, you know, some some real some real things, some change, some make some real changes. Um, but again, if you look at his website and if you look at the things he was speaking on, it was just kind of nonsense. It was it was not specific and when he got in the White House, um, you know, maybe the rhetoric was, you know, enough to to get him a second term. Right. But his policies weren't much different than George W. Bush. In fact, I think didn't he even expand uh, uh, the the Patriot Act, and you know, he was the one that uh, uh, started the drone warfare campaign. Uh, he was also the administration that um, prosecuted more whistleblowers than any other administration in U.S. Absolutely. history. Uh, he was also right. the uh, deporter in chief. So, um, yeah, all this hopey, changey stuff, which Sarah Palin said, you know, it's just nonsense. It doesn't mean anything. She was right, actually. She was right. It didn't really mean much. Uh, so she kind of nailed it. And again, Chomsky was like, you know, they interviewed him after Obama got in and they're like, you know, what do you expect from Obama? And he said, not much. He he really didn't run on much. You know, he had some, he had some good rhetoric and right. a lot of good speeches, but he didn't. He didn't run on. He didn't really lie to us either. He didn't say, "I'm going to change the healthcare system. I'm going to give everyone Medicare for all." This, that, the other thing. All he gave us was, you know, Obamacare, which was better than the GOP plan, which is nothing. Um, but it's just a corporate watered down giveaway, you know, to insurance companies, right? Absolutely. And and so, the, I mean, I want to get back to uh, to it a little bit. But while we're on the subject of of Obamacare. Basically, what they passed, and he, he had a supermajority. They literally could have put pressure on Democrats to pass any health care policy they wanted to at that time. They did not need to get Republican votes for the bill. Uh, so their excuse for settling on what is essentially Romney care, yeah. written by, it was written by a Republican for his own state, 
all it did was slow the growth of increases in corporate profits for, for the medical industry. So it didn't cut or freeze the profit level. It just stopped the growth curve so that they kept making more profits, but not as fast as they were accelerating the profit growth. So that isn't a system. And the, the problem with putting faith in something like that is, as the solution is that a lot of people went to sleep on it. Like this is better than the alternative. It's better than what the right was going to do. And they're not wrong, but it, it didn't fix the problem. It, 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 it actually criminalized poverty for a lot of people. Um, but, but real quick, as far as the hope and change part goes, I mean, the clue with, with Obama, and this, this was part of what drew me into politics, is just the disillusionment that was clear to people who were following all these issues closely, is that he, can, he had all this rhetoric, but at the end of the day, and this is, this is borne out in, in the, the uh, email leaks, uh, Bain Capital selected his entire cabinet. So if he's this lefty with all this change in place, you know, why did they let the, the corporations come in and the banks select his cabinet? Yeah, I mean, the uh, this is, again, back to Chomsky, who wrote a lot about this. But um, the the Wall Street was what got Obama in the White House. Um, that was the majority of his political campaign contributions. Um, that Wall Street preferred him over McCain. I had a uh, I had a guest on who worked in big banking uh, and technology. He wasn't necessarily a banker, but worked for the big banking industry um, with a background in technology and information sciences. And he had a breakdown of um, uh, the contribution in the last campaign cycle, and it was pretty much half and half split both <laughs> both parties almost equally because uh, you know they're going to give to a little bit of both uh, candidates on both sides so that, you know, when whoever wins, they're going to win, you know. But uh, I guess Wall Street gave a little bit more money to Obama. That was the majority of his campaign funding. Uh, at the time, you know, we had the, uh, I guess, the financial crisis. And, um, and Obama, you know, could have changed the financial system. Instead, just chose to kick the can down the road, put a Band-Aid on, band on it. Um, maybe the faces at the top of these big banks change a little bit, but the same class of people with the same ideologies, you know, were running it. And in fact, um, these crashes are built into the system. They know that, you know, if they're if they're greedy um, and make risky loans and, and uh, gambles with the economy, they know that they could crash the economy for sure. But the payoff is great. They can make a lot of money, too. Unfortunately, they got a little bit too greedy, um, and, and, and it led to basically a financial meltdown. Um, but they knew that, you know, they were too big to fail. So the, the taxpayers, um, you know, came to the rescue like they always do every seven years. Socialism bails out um, capitalism. Um, right. And who did Obama put in charge of rebuilding the banking system, literally the same people uh, that, that crashed the economy, the same cast of characters. Uh, it would be like, um, it would be a lot like, uh, you know, picking the heads of big tobacco companies to legislate child smoking, you know, <laughs> like, like uh, you know, it, it, what, I mean, that's basically how they do it. You know, regulatory and, capture, regulatory capture. Right. Eventually 
um, you know, the, we're supposed to regulate, you know, the big banks and that sort of thing. But eventually the people running these big banks become the regulators. So what type of policies do you think they're going to make? You know, they're going to make policies because I'm sure they got great portfolios and they got their buddies. If they left the, there's basically a revolving door from wall street and corporate boardrooms to the white house, you know, and, and depending on what administration is in power, um, you know, Trump, I'm sure had a lot of the same wall street elites in his economic cabinet. I don't know as much about that, but, you know, Obama and his failures is definitely kind of what radicalized me and what had me following politics. I think a lot of times, um, you know, a Democrat gets in the White House and people on the left fall asleep like everything's OK. When you really start to look at it, there's really not much difference. I tend to pre prefer Democrats, maybe only because I'd rather have Democratic judges in the Supreme Court. But outside of that, you're really like, I think Lila pressed me on it. She said, what's some differences between George W. Bush and Biden? I really couldn't give you a lot. And she was, and her quip was, uh, well, at least George W. Bush didn't write the crime bill. Good point. Good point. I mean, historically, Joe Biden has been behind 99% of the problems we're trying to ask the Democratic to fix right now. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he, the Patriot Act is, is, uh, he claimed credit for, for the Patriot Act, even though technically he didn't write the Patriot Act, but he claimed he claimed it. He claimed that he would claim he would claim he's he's not too much different than Trump. If he could if he could get people if he could claim something and get people to believe it, he would. He's a he's a he's a liar, and I think that's a prerequisite to to making a lifetime in in Washington politics. I mean, you just take this week. I mean, it's it's a small lie, but he's out in Maui talking to them, and uh, after their you know the huge fires, disastrous fires in Maui. And he's he's trying to relay some empathy, like he went through this this house fire, and the the brave firemen ran in and and saved his wife and and cat, and thankfully his car didn't burn up. Well, the reality is his wife called the fire department because there was a small fire in the kitchen, and that's it. So you know his wife wasn't in danger; she wasn't yeah. a threat. She literally called. The cat probably could get out of the kitchen without <laughs> catching fire. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's, it's a nothing of a story, but right. I mean, it's just an example of something that's a bold faced lie told. And he's been told for a decade, not to say that lie. He's been told for decades, decades, not to say, keep telling people he was marching with MLK when he was literally on the wrong side of the issue. Then, uh, he, he claimed that he went down to an apartheid and, and, uh, was, was blocked from meeting Nelson Mandela. Uh, which he wasn't. I mean, he the lie. He claimed he was top of his law school class. He wasn't. He was in the bottom, you know, third or something. I mean, the, the lie. He claimed drunk driver killed his his uh, was it his, his one of his sons. That didn't happen. That's tormented that poor family forever. That they're they're connected to this alleged drunk driving incident. I mean, these are all things anyone could look up, but they just go unchallenged. I mean. And, and and that's just on the personal side. What really matters is, aside from personality, is is your your actions as president. You know, right? And, and not even that. I think what what did he do? Like you're talking about his history uh, as a as a legislator and making his career in, in Washington. I I like to. I think I think when we start talking about personalities, um, character flaws, and uh, sexual exploits of our leaders. We already know something's going on behind the scenes. You know, I think that the media, not, not that these things don't right. matter. Of course, we don't want, uh, uh, you know, a, 
a, a criminal or a just a you know a misogynist or just a, a bad person uh, in power. Um, but you know, I think a lot of these, I think in general, politics tends to um, right. tend to recruit some of you know the worst characters. Yeah. So, but yeah. I, I, again, I like to focus on the issues. I think the, most of these people got major major baggage, but. Again, I think that the media always tries to divert our attention on, oh, this person's married, they have adopted such and such. Like, they're they're a great person. How can anyone be against them? Well, I don't know. Let's look at the voting history. Like, that's what they did with Amy Barrett, whatever, the, the new Supreme Court justice. Right. Like, oh, she's a great person. She's adopted, you know, minority kids and all that kind of stuff. But, oh, but, you know, uh, what, what was her voting history? What was her agenda when she got in office? Overturning, you know. Uh, Roe v. Wade. Well, that's kind of a big issue. Maybe, maybe we should care less about um, her family life and more about what she's going to do as, as, a, as a Supreme Court justice. And you had mentioned about um, where Biden went to law school or where he graduated in his class. Like, I don't care at all for a Supreme Court justice. I want someone that's going to be for the working class. I want real working class representation. I would love to have. I don't. I don't care if someone went to an Ivy League. I don't care if someone went to uh, an Ivy League and graduated in the top of their class. What I would want, and I think I said this on the, the podcast with your co-host, I want a public defender that's in there and, and is fighting for working class people. They came from a working class background. Maybe they graduated at the bottom of a law school, state school that's unranked or something like that. I don't care. As long as I can get real working class representation in Washington, which we obviously don't have. And then I also made... Uh, the comparison between the German political system and they have like Angela Merkel. She was a scientist, PhD, chemist, uh, organic chemist, something like that. Uh, and they have, um, you know, business people, sure. And engineers though, and, and teachers, and they have like a diverse makeup of their legislators. And of course, Germany has got major problems and countries in Europe have major problems. Although, you know, I like the Scandinavian countries and their emphasis on socialist values, like education and, um, you know, humane treatment of prisoners in jail and healthcare, of course. Uh, but I think it would be a great thing. It seems like Washington is staffed with essentially the same type of person, a corporate leader or a corporate lawyer or a lobbyist or, you know, someone on someone that, you know, is essentially a, a corporate shill. And it seems like just the majority of Washington is just all leaders with the same or lawyers with the same agenda. And, and I think there would be a real difference. Of course, the system needs to change, but I think if, if we actually had real working class representation and democracy in practice, where normal working people actually get to have a say in policy development instead of just um, ratifying decisions made by elites by pushing one or two buttons, uh, by p- choosing one of two terrible candidates, um, that's not real democracy, voting every four years. Year. Yeah, and the quadrennial extravaganza, the circus that is, you know, run by the um, the public relations industry. For example, Obama uh, won the uh, marketing campaign of the year in two thousand uh, and eight. I think that was the election um, two thousand and eight when he got into the White House and was inaugurated in two thousand and nine. He won the marketing campaign of the year. The same people running Obama's campaign are the same people selling us toothpaste. Because they know that the differences between the candidates are so slight that they have to, you know, make it like a, like a, like a commercial or like a brand, brand Obama. Because they know if they get into the real issues uh, and focus on things other than, you know, a tan suit or personality failures or where someone went to law school, um, if they get into the real issues, like what's what's their agenda, what are they going to vote on, what's their what's their past history, 
Um, they know that uh, uh, they're going to lose favor with the public, so they have to distract us with a bunch of nonsense. Yeah, and you know, I'm not going to say that these issues are nonsense, and you're not saying it either. I don't want to put words in your mouth. But when it comes to the Supreme Court, for example, the problem is they're going to always elect somebody that doesn't that somebody that is against the working class. Like that is baked into it because both parties will never put up somebody who doesn't align with their corporate interests. That their donors will have a, a, a cow flip out. It would never happen. Even if you had a Bernie Sanders in there. They would use all their leverages of power to make sure that you've got somebody who represents corporate interests on the right. Now, you know, on the left, we could get somebody who's pro-abortion rights. We could get somebody who's not a fucking racist. The so-called left. Yeah, the so-called yeah. left. Maybe some stuff right. on abortion and maybe they're not a total sleazeball. You know, great. Right. Yeah, that's a step mm-hmm. up from Trump, I guess. <laughs> you know? and, the, and those things do matter. And There is a difference between that person and Definitely. the right person who supports those issues. But none of that is helping the middle class. None of that is helping no. the, the poor. And none of that is getting us closer to any healthcare interests. And you're just not going to see that in, in my lifetime. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm over 50 and I just I don't see it changing until we reject the party. And, you know, it, it's it, like we, we covered this a little bit tonight, like every Every election cycle, we, we showed a video going back to 2004 of every politician running for president saying, uh, this is the most important election of your lifetime. This is the most important election of your lifetime. You know, and they just do that ad nauseum. Of course, of course. You know, and it's always not the time to talk about it because, you know, if you want to push an issue on the left, well, now's not the time because it's so important that we beat this fascist on the right. So save it. <laughs> Save it till, you know, next year. But then next year comes around, the year after an election. Well, now we're queuing up for the midterms. And it's so important that we get a couple more seats because this is the most important, you know, they instantly switch to, well, the president doesn't have any power. So we need to get these senators and congresspeople. It's the most important election in your lifetime, even though it's a midterm. So for the first time, can you guys show up and get us these people? And they'll know, they're always going to be a balance to where the other side now can stop any progress. Because if there's any progress whatsoever it could lead to more progress. So they're just going right. to squash any improvements. Uh, they, they take every crisis and use it as an opportunity to throw some more money at, at their friends that run a certain corporation or have some certain interest or uh, a group that donates, you know, oil rights. I mean, Ukraine, you know, Ukraine, there are a lot of people over there profiting off of the destruction of Ukraine. Uh, the defense, yeah, the defensive contracts, tractors, uh, you know, profiteering off of, you know, bombs and, uh, you know, just, just constant war. And I think, uh, United States could use its political power, uh, and prestige in the world, which is obviously, uh, by the decade, you know, decreasing, uh, I think, uh, us power, um, hit, it hit its apex after world war two, when the United States was 6.5% of the world's population had about half the world's wealth, uh, ever since then, um, you know, uh, it's been losing wealth and power and influence. But the, if the United States actually wanted to um, help the people of Ukraine instead of use them in, as cannon fodder uh, and, and, and in, in an effort to weaken their um, mil- their biggest military rival and political enemy, um, Russia, they would use their, again, negotiating their, their political power to negotiate peace 
and diplomacy instead of uh, uh, an endless proxy war um, that is constantly putting us on the verge of nuclear war and total annihilation. Yeah, and and just from the the perspective of people in Ukraine, I mean, if you look at it to look, they have every right to defend themselves, you know, but we essentially have propped them up and encouraged this all to happen, right? And provocation. I mean, the provocation with the expansion of NATO since uh, since yeah, the we, Soviet Union dissolved in 1991 or whenever it was, right. which which we've been encouraging them to do, uh, despite us knowing that that was going to to likely lead to war with Russia. I mean, we, we've known that. But my, my point I was going to make is that, look, nobody talks about how Ukraine wins this war. I mean, the better they do militarily, the more bombs just get launched, uh, undirected bombs, missiles get launched from Russia. Russia doesn't, Russia can sit on the sidelines and keep lobbying bombs forever. Yeah, it can, it can always escalate the war. It has infinite potential to escalate. It's sitting on an arsenal of like 2,000 nuclear uh, warheads, or I'm sorry, 5,000, I believe. I think Russia actually has more than the United States. I looked this up before I had a podcast. We talked about nuclear proliferation. We actually signed, the United States signed the Nuclear Proliferation Treaty. If we're supposed to take it seriously, that would mean, you know, ending um, new development of new nuclear missiles and hopefully over time, you know, getting rid of our stock. But obviously, we're not taking it seriously. Right. Neither is Russia and this proxy war is bringing us ever so closely to again nuclear annihilation and uh, total uh, you know total uh, extinction of the species. I have this quote here. I was I'm doing a single I'm doing a solo podcast, but I this is just the page I was reading as I was recording before you um, came on here. But I was talking about the the the, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, there was uh, a, a Russian submarine in the, I guess, the waters between Florida and Cuba, armed with a nuclear torpedo, a 10-kiloton nuclear torpedo. It was attacked by a uh, American naval destroyer. Um, there was three officers on the um, submarine. They had uh, the uh, approval to launch um, this nuclear missile, this nuclear torpedo, uh, with uh, three unanimous votes of the officers. Two of the officers said, let's, let's fire on this U.S. destroyer. One said no, and the world was ever changed for the better. If that would have happened, uh, I'm pretty certain we wouldn't be here today. I think there would be mutually assured destruction. I think if the United States was hit with a nuclear torpedo, I think it would launch its entire arsenal at Russia. And once, once Russia got word of that... I think they would rush their entire nuclear arsenal uh, back at the United States. And after right. the dust settled, uh, I think it only takes somewhere between 10 and 100 nuclear missiles to end the possibility of life on Earth. And anyways, after all this madness, I have a quote here from General Lee Butler, who once proclaimed that, So far, nuclear war has been averted by some combination of skill, luck, and divine intervention. And I suspect the latter in greatest proportion. So I'm a peace activist. No nuclear war. Well, amen. I mean, and, and you're right. There, you know, we've got fail-safes in place to where if, if bombs are launched here, they, some of them launch automatically. We're, we're not even stopping them. They're just going to go. So this idea that we can have a rational, and who knows? I mean, the, the nuclear systems are so out, out of date. And to think that somehow we're on these problems. If you look at how our government responds to a crisis, we are not on any problems. We're not ahead of the game. We're, we are not 
as safe as we probably think we are. <laughs> uh, and, you know, Chomsky has said this. He's more of an expert uh, than I am, but a nuclear weapon is not a weapon of defense. Uh, it's a weapon. It's a first strike weapon. And it's also sends a signal to the rest of the world that, yeah, don't mess with us. We have a nuclear weapon. So I think that's was behind North Korea's uh, development of nuclear weapons because, um, you know, it's constantly being uh, provoked by South Korea, a U.S. ally in the United States. So, you know, I think they decided to develop nuclear weapons. So, for example, if Iraq would have had them and maybe better defenses, um, you know, there's a, there's a good chance that the United States wouldn't have invaded. So the way I see it, it's not uh, it's a first strike weapon to be used uh, as aggression, but it's also to send a message that hey, you know, you better not attack us because we have the ultimate weapon just in case. So, uh, but yeah, I, I certainly don't think that okay, if Russia fired nuclear weapons on us, uh, there would be any benefit to go ahead and fire back at them. You know, it's a first strike weapon to I think take out your opponent before your opponent knows what hit them. Like, having nuclear weapons generally is not making the world a safer place, and I talked about this on a, on a podcast, but I think the, even with a physicist, I think if the nuclear weapon, if the nuclear bomb was never developed, the world in general would be way safer. So I think uh, I can't see any way that a nuclear weapon can be used as a positive. Most technologies, the way I see it, is neutral, except the nuclear bomb. I can't see a, a positive purpose to use that, uh, to use that weapon of catastrophic uh, potential. Yeah, with you 100%. Yeah, so the 14th Amendment, it's, look, it's a long shot, but for the people that don't want Trump to run, um, if you're found guilty of insurrectionist action, the Congress has the power to enact the 14th Amendment, which only takes a 50% plus one vote. So you wouldn't need many Republicans to agree with you um, to bar Trump from running for office. Yeah, I think that would be a good thing. Uh, I don't want to see Trump in the White House, but in 2024 election cycle, I don't want to see Biden running either. <laughs> I'm right there with you. And you know I what? Mean, look, um, I read an article of something like 71% of uh, the U.S. electorate don't want to see uh, Biden run. They think he's, you know, whatever, too old or yada, yada, yada. I, I don't, I'm not into ageism, although I will say that I definitely notice some clear cognitive decline from, you know, maybe his a little bit more lucid nature uh, as a vice president, um, you know, maybe a decade or so ago. Uh, The way I see it, he's the Democrats version of Reagan. You know, it kind of shows up once a month or once every few weeks. And he's got a staff in place that makes sure that he doesn't say anything outlandish or doesn't make any huge gaffes. And if they do, they try to minimize, you know, and and do damage control. But yeah, I think he's just kind of um, a figurehead. Uh, is, is a lot like I think Trump was a figurehead. I think the, uh, you know, the Democratic machine is behind Biden and the, and the Republican machine that was behind Trump. And, of course, there's a lot of the same cast of characters. Uh, I'm sure, uh, I don't know, I, I haven't done a study on this or anything, but I'm sure, um, you know, the, the people in power uh, during the Trump administration, there was a lot of uh, leftovers from the Obama administration. And I know what Louis DeJoy Right. That's a Trump uh, leftover that's still uh, overseeing the, the U.S. Postal Department. So I think regardless of what party um, and administration gets in power, uh, not not a lot changes. Like, for example, the 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 George W. Bush White House was the, the Bush Bush one uh, White House with Dick Cheney uh, and the Bush one White House was 
pretty much the Reagan administration, right? So there's not much change from administration to administration, even if the party in power changes. Absolutely. And so, you know, to bring it back to, look, there's no doubt that some people look at Biden's age and that's the number one disqualifier because he's, you know, he's president of the United States. He should, he should be cognitively hundred percent, not, 60, 70, whatever number you want to put on it. Um, But the real reason Democrats are losing support and why he's losing support is his policy over the last few years. So he came to power on the heels of the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, Black Lives Matter movement had a majority support across both parties when he came into power. What did did, did Biden uh, say on the campaign trail? Uh, If you don't vote for me, you ain't black. Right. Remain black. So, <laughs> so they used they, they used all that, and they actually turned public support against Black Lives Matter because they the Democratic Party scapegoated the movement as a reason that Democrats didn't win enough seats. They said, "Oh, uh, BLM was pushing defund the police, and that hurt Democrats." And that message being repeated over and over actually. So if you go if you look now, Biden has lost. 30% of support among black males. Uh, and that's not insignificant when you look at the margins that these elections are decided by. You know, even if if Biden was up 5% nationally, uh, did it cut out again? No, you're good. Oh, okay. His support, you know, it, national standings don't matter in elections. It's state by state every time, and the swing states are going to decide it. And as we've been told over and over again, black voters are the Democratic Party's base. And so dropping 30% with black males as a direct result of his actions as president, uh, it's really going to impact his popularity. And, and, you know, you don't stop fascism, which is the Democrats' main argument. Preserving democracy is their, their main argument for their party by not having primary debates and picking forcing the Democratic voter to back a guy who's 81 years old, who 75% of the country do not want to run for office. So, I mean, Bernie's right around the same age. Now, uh, there's some issues and problems with Bernie for sure. Um, but, you know, I would much rather have Bernie in there than pretty much anyone, you know, in Congress. So, uh, but I definitely see some clear cognitive decline for Biden, uh, so, you know, the ageism is a factor, at least as it relates to his cognitive ability. And not all 81-year-olds are created equal. Like, I, I certainly see some clear cognitive decline there. I still see Bernie as sharp and lucid, and I would take him over pretty much anyone else in Washington. Although, and maybe we can get into that, um, you know, and I, I agree. I think uh, there's some there's some tactics and political strategies that, that Bernie has been involved in, uh, especially since, you know, Biden's been in the White House that, a lot of us on the left have been critical of. Uh, would you like to maybe go into detail about those? So you kind of started, right? Yeah. You kind of started as a Bernie supporter. That's kind of what you, what you got really into big big into politics. And I would say he was part of my radicalization too. I said uh, about the uh, you know Obama and the hope and change stuff. Uh, I also I saw the organic um, Occupy Wall Street um, movement sweep across the country. I thought that that was really cool. And, you know, Bernie came out uh, as kind of the face of the left um, right around that time. And I, I started following politics really closely ever ever since. But, uh, again, uh, there's been some 
things over the last couple of years that a lot of people on the left have been critical of Bernie's, you know, tactics and the way he's going about things. Yeah, I mean, like, for example, he, you know, he's just this week and, and look back to where, I mean, he, he is why I'm, I'm in politics. I mean, if you want to call me in politics, but he's, he's what activated me as somebody who follows the news closely, shares the news, tries to get engaged. You know, I've worked for a voting organization. I rally people, um, whatever, whatever I do, I do because two parts. I mean, the disillusion from, from Obama and seeing him and Occupy as the solution, workers' rights. And if you look at Bernie, his, his whole life, it's, he's as genuine as they get, you know. But so as far as what, what's disappointing, and it goes against what Chomsky has said forever and goes against Bernie's own words, and we, we showed that tonight on our show, but um, if at the end of the day, you're going to push for people to vote for Joe Biden, you do that at the end of the day. You don't do it now. And Bernie just this week right. was out there um, basically trying to steer people away from supporting Cornell West as a third party candidate. And to have Bernie out here, who used to say you, you get as much leverage as you can out of the candidate before you give an endorsement. And he's Bernie should be calling for primaries for one. He should be supporting third party candidates. And at the end of all this, when it wraps up and you want to say, hey, you know, I think everybody should vote for Biden. That's fine. Um, but as a as a leftist who's, you know, fallen into to pushing what Bernie says to a lot of people, our centrist sort of normie friends who don't follow politics very closely. They see Bernie as the most radical guy there is. Yeah. And so when the most radical guy there is is saying, well, you just got to support Biden, it really deflates an argument I try to make to these centrist people because they're like, hey, uh, even your pal Bernie is like on board with Biden now. And what he should do is wait. He should he should say, you know, I want Biden to guarantee some worker uh, union rights. I want yeah. Biden to to uh, get some COVID protections in place. I want Biden to ensure clean air for schools, uh, you know, whatever. Pick, pick a few things and, and leverage it. But instead, he's out here early saying you should just support this guy and there's too much at stake to, to even hold these discussions in, in any serious form. Uh, and maybe we can kind of go into, you know, ranked choice voting. Um, I want to go into some founding of the country stuff uh, that I wrote down. Uh, but kind of where we are right now, I, I want to uh, – as I've been studying Chomsky a while and trying to understand – you know, where he's coming from. And I think he's got a lot of great, um, uh, a lot of great insight on just politics in general, probably the, the most famous and most quoted political philosopher of the last hundred years or more. Uh, but yeah, he, he kind of says like voting should take all of five minutes of your time. Uh, and then you go right back to activism. Uh, now is not the time. I don't think to start campaigning for the 2024 election. Uh, so I'll agree with you on your stance on Bernie. Total agreement on everything you said about him. I think you're right on. I think we both, uh, you know, still admire Bernie or some of the things he's done and stood for throughout his career. But right now, it seems like, you know, he's just um, a mainstream Democrat supporting Joe Biden, which a lot of people on the left are tired of. Uh, but yeah, again, Chomsky, back to uh, elections. It's five minutes of your time. Vote against the worst candidate. Um and you don't vote for the guy or the woman or the person you want in, in the White House. You always, because it's usually one of two terrible choices. You always vote against the worst candidate. If you are in a swing state, at least. If you're in a swing state, you probably should vote 
um, just because of how horrible uh, electoral politics is in this country, which I think apathy is not the way to go about electoral electrical, uh, electoral politics. Electrical work. You're an electrician, right? Uh, electoral politics, um, you know, because... Uh, uh, you know, apathy and not voting. The right loves that. The Republicans love that. That's another easy win for them. They're all about that. They'll take as, they'll take it any way they can get it. So if you're in a swing state, unfortunately, with the Electoral College, um, you know, probably vote against the worst candidate. A lot of times that's probably going to be voting against the Republicans. Certainly if it's Trump, uh, I, I don't like Biden at all. But I think between Biden and Trump, Trump's maybe a little bit worse, maybe a little bit bigger threat. I'm not going to argue that too strongly because I'm not a fan of Biden. Um, and if you're in a if you're in a Democrat state or a blue state, you know, vote for whoever you want. Uh, if it makes you feel good, for sure, vote vote third party because um, it's a safe state. Uh, and if you're in a Republican state, yeah, not not much is going to matter. But if you're in one of those swing states that decide an election, probably you know it, there's there's a difference. And this is kind of what Chomsky says between feel good politics and 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 do good politics. You know, so for example, tactics and that sort of thing. If you're angry because of um, you know, police violence and disproportionate uh, targeting of African-Americans, locking them up in prison and mass incarceration. That's a good thing. But how do you direct that um, anger? You know, if you're going out to a protest with a sign and, and, and support, that's a good thing. But if you're, you know, throwing rocks at police and, and setting fires, that's kind of more your uh, feel good politics. You're, you're letting off some steam or something like that. But that's not a very good tactic to get people to kind of side with you and people on the right use that um is like hey look at look at these violent leftists they they want to you know attack uh uh cops and burn down our cities and 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 they're going to use that uh, against us so and I, and I think the same thing for electoral politics and, and apathy they're going to use whatever <laughs> whatever tactic they can to win an election whether they they'll, they've just shown us they'll they'll even try to steal it They'll even try to steal it. They don't care. But I think the Democrats would too if they could get away with it. Um, but I think we can't give up on electoral politics. But my focus here is probably what your focus is. Yeah. That's change outside the system. That's why I started Necessary Illusions to get different ideas out there. I'm not running for office. I'm not an insider. I don't campaign. I'm not a delegate or anything like that. So I'm trying to make change outside the system. But what I will say is we can't use apathy or completely abandon electoral politics. We have to do some things inside the system and hopefully get more leftists in power. I'll quote, uh, as an anarchist, I'll quote Emma Goldman, uh, if voting could change anything, it would already be illegal. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I it's a tricky one for me because I've always been a proponent of the inside-outside politics, which is kind of in line with Chomsky. You use, you know, you... you you're heavier on the outside politics, but you still vote strategically. You still follow elect electoral politics. You still try to take over the Democratic Party. You still try to get somebody into a lever of power that's a little better than the last guy, right? And that's that's kind of the goal. Um, but I do think it's really strategically, it is debatable whether winning or losing is a better option for, for the Democratic Party. I think there's a, a debate to be had there. I don't know that it's conclusive because at some point, you know, we're running two candidates who every cycle are more unpopular than the last cycle. Yep. If you mapped out the popularity of the candidates, because all we're doing is voting against. Um, so, you know, I think there, there could be value in getting the public. I mean, there, there's always value in getting the public more informed. 
Now, how you yep. get the public more informed? Do you get it more informed by losing, or the Democrats just scapegoat progressives when they lose, which is what they did? And every time they lose, it's the progressives' fault. But, but you know, I mean, take BLM that we were just talking about. So, did their movement do better since Biden won? No, their movement got crushed by Biden. Crushed. So Biden, uh, Biden's administration took COVID money, money that was supposed to go to COVID, and gave it to fund more police. Yeah, so we talked about like the I, I did the pod on this too. Uh, Biden had talked about I think like a hundred thousand new cops. Um, I I, uh, I I quoted him in one of my solo pods. Uh, Biden said something like, "We're not going to defund the police when I get in the White House" or something like that. Now I'm paraphrasing. Now I'm going to quote him again. What we're going to do is fund them, fund them, and fund them. You know, so that's that was his stance yeah. on defund the police. He's uh, he's all about the police and the police state and the crime bill and mass incarceration and whatever I mean, else. If you, you know, if you just look at uh, one of the State of the Union speeches where he he called out the Republicans saying, "Oh, did we did we walk back on all our oil investments? We didn't. You know, ha ha ha. We're just as oil friendly as as we as you guys are." So, you know, what, so what does that do to movements? How does that affect them when you have somebody who, you know, you and I may be following this stuff closely, but there's no, you know, MSNBC isn't covering all the ways that Biden lied to them. They're not covering it. So our normally friends are less in tune with these issues when there's a Democrat in power. So does it help the movements? No. Now, where we have problems you know, we'll always have problems un- until we do something about the Supreme Court, because, you know, a lot of these issues land there. But like like we said, you know, you're not going to get on the Supreme Court unless you, you co-sign already in advance every corporate issue. So. Yeah. Well, let me get let, let me get into this. Uh, I wrote a, wrote a bunch of stuff down here and then maybe we can go a little bit to yeah, talked about in the pre-call about electoral college and ranked choice voting and maybe some of the uh, California politics stuff. Um, but let me just throw this out there. Um, this is an old communist adage uh, before the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, which collapsed from within, as all empires do. Um, and the way I see it, workers weren't all that much better off uh, after the Russian Revolution. I think the I think it was more of a Bolshevik coup d'état, and the vanguard party took over and you know criminalized any opposition to it. So I'm no uh, I'm no communist. Uh, I'm no friend of the Soviet Union. Uh, I'm no apologist for Lenin or Stalin. I'm an anarchist. I've never liked uh, or read about a government. That, I've never read or uh, saw a government that I've liked. Uh, I am a critic of all governments, but the only government that matters to me is the, is the uh, U.S. government because I am a citizen, and it's the only government I have the power to influence. Um, but back to the Soviet Union uh, and the old adage of the Communist Party, the worst candidate is the best because it's more likely that people are going to... Um, you know, dissent is at an all-time high, I think, in the United States, and you kind of hit it, hit on that a little bit. And the and the and, and the worst candidate being the best is kind of Trump. When Trump was in the White House, that's how I'm kind of you know trying to tie the the old communist adage and their dissidents uh, and their dissident movements to to Trump in modern times, uh, because people on the left were a lot more likely to go out and protest and show their discontent. 
when Biden's in the White House, it seems like there's a lot more, you know, sleepwalking. Everything's okay. Uh, the propaganda machine is taking over and, and you know, putting everyone into a dogmatic slumber. If I could go ahead and quote Immanuel Kant, one of my favorite philosophers. Um, but dissident is, dissidence is growing. And how do I know that? Well, it's clear. Um, first off, SCOTUS, uh, a month or two ago, I haven't checked it since then, uh, as their lowest all-time approval rating. Uh, that was after the student loan debacle. Um, Congress is constantly flirting with single digits. And yet, at a time when uh, incumbents are winning high 90s of their elections. So we all hate Congress, you know, 90-some percent of us, 80, 80 high 80s, low 90s uh, percent of us uh, are, are, uh, do not approve of what they're doing in Congress. We think they're crooks, at least most of us think, or many of us do at least. And yet they win 90-some percent of their elections. So what does that tell you at a, at a, at a time when dissidence is at or near all-time highs in the United States? That's telling us that choices are not being presented. Or the same old you know, garbage in, garbage out, nothing has changed. So now, allow me to go back to um, what you were talking a little bit about, the Supreme Court uh, and the Democrats, which, sure, there's a lot of rhetoric from the Democrats about democracy. There's actually some straight-up uh, fascist <laughs> remarks from, I saw some GOP uh, congressional members and whatnot that, you know, we're not a democracy and kind of scoffed and laughed at it. Like, they're, they're not even beating around the bush anymore. They're saying the silent part out loud. Uh, but there's a lot of rhetoric um, about democracy. Elites have never been uh, in favor of democracy. When I say elites, I mean the ruling party, the establishment, and that's members of both parties. There's the so-called left, the Democrats, but they're not uh, anything more than corporate elites with a little bit better rhetoric. Uh, and again, the elites have never been in favor of democracy because that interferes with privilege. And now let's go back to 1776. We're going back a long ways here. We went back a couple of administrations, but now I'm going back to the founding member the first Supreme Court justice, a founding father, as we call them. Uh, i got to kind of quote that kind of stuff. It's absurd. Um, we kind of raise these people that are human beings to divine status. Uh, I don't think um, I should care all that I don't at least care all that much about uh, the Constitution and what was written by a cold, dead hand hundreds of years ago. I do like Thomas right. Jefferson, who liked uh, the idea of a revolution every generation or so uh, to keep you know politicians honest. But anyways, I'm going back to John Jay who said that those who own the country ought to govern it. So that's what he said about uh, the governments in this, in this country. Uh, James Madison, the framer of the Constitution at the Constitutional Convention, um, he said that the role of government is to protect the opulent minority, the opulent minority from the majority. That doesn't sound like democracy. So what uh, Madison was doing is trying to limit democracy. What was democracy at the time? Who was it for? That was rich white property owners. And so the power of the United States and its founding was invested in the Senate. There was two houses uh, of, of Congress. Um, if any progressive legislation got through the first house, power would be in the Senate to stop that progressive legislation. Uh, at the time, uh, the Senate was unelected, kind of like the Supreme Court today. These were um, uh, carefully selected and hand-picked elites to run the country. At the time, uh, the Senate was not voted on uh, during the early days of uh, the United States government. And the Senate was staffed with um, elites who would be sympathetic to landed property owners, the landed aristocracy, and again, at that time, was rich white males, uh, I think with a certain religious, um, in a certain religious sect. So, again, the way I kind of see it, uh, government or whatever 
the system in place is running exactly how it was designed in 1776 and not much has changed. Although we don't have slavery any, anymore and uh, democracy has been expanded to include um, women and a lot more diverse uh uh, electorate, um, but there's no, it, 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 it's only because of hard, hard fought struggle. Uh, every single day, the right is trying to, I, I, I heard um, not too long ago about, um, you know, why is 18 year olds able to vote? Let's make the voting age, what, 25 or something like that. You know, they're always trying to minimize democracy. They're always trying to take it away from felons and people thrown in prison who get out and serve their time, but they don't want them to vote. So, uh, on the left, our struggle should always be to expand democracy. We want as many people to vote as possible. And, of course, the Democrats um, say they're in, are in favor of democracy, uh, but they're not. And I think you had mentioned something about they were trying to keep third parties off the ballot. Uh, and I love the idea of ranked choice voting. So, anyways, I'll throw it back to you after my tangent on the founding of the country and the system in place. No worries. It's important. Um yeah, so while, while you're talking about democracy, I just want to mention one thing, you know, there's, there was a major study, and I have no memory of, of who. 2014 Princeton, I believe. Is that the one you're quoting? Yeah, let's, it was Harvard. It was Harvard. But uh, there was a major study that showed that uh, public support for any issue or legislation had no bearing on its passing. Uh, and that's because we don't have a voice anymore. We have, we have literally no voice in electoral politics left. Um, so anyway, an example of this, so, you know, Democrats are supposedly trying to expand voting access anywhere. And as you said, on the left, we should always be fighting to expand voting access. Well, in Atlanta, Cop City, which is a big, uh, insane police bunker, their, uh, mega million dollar bunker that they're trying to build, which is basically to, to teach Cops, how to stop protesters. Is, is I, I saw another one in Baltimore, another $330 million plan. They're just City starting it. In. Yep, just starting it. Yeah, so Cop City in Atlanta is a test case. And um, that's why the big, you know, the, a big push on the left is to stop Cop City. So, you know, they, uh, activists out there have been fighting hard for it. And they got all the, they, they surpassed the number of signatures they need by, I don't know, four times or whatever. Uh, to get this on the ballot so people could vote against Cop City. And the Democratic Party is out there challenging signatures on this. Um, so that's your Democratic Party. So they really are not in, in line with the public. And, uh, and this is an issue, you know, in Atlanta, the people don't support Cop City. It's, it's just something that's going to pass despite the people. So anyway, as, as a way to get power back to people uh, for... for <coughs> Excuse me. For a while, I worked with a group uh, fighting for ranked choice voting. So you could take away what ranked choice does is it takes away the excuse of needing to vote for the lesser evil. Uh, so basically, you know, say you've got a Democrat, a Green and the Republican and you don't want to vote for the Green because, you know, you're worried he'll lose the Republican. Well, they just count the ballots and they start whittling it down. So once they realize the Green's not going to win. Your set, who was your second vote? Your second vote was the Democrat, so the, the Democrat ends up getting your vote. So it, it's a way to expand democracy. And there's star voting, which is a similar system. Um, and I'm familiar with state, that one. Yeah, I've heard of ranked choice voting. What's the star system? Uh, I mean, it's kind of the same thing. It's just a points value. You, you assign a candidate uh, five stars for your vote, four stars, that kind of thing. And so the group that I was working with, 
um, star voting is actually probably a better system to express the voters intent. Uh, so some states are trying to pass star voting, but ranked choice voting is more popular. More people already know what it means. So some states are trying to pass some version of ranked choice voting. So the organization I was working for was trying to combine all these into a point system per se, so that as a block, the people that chose ranked choice or those other things could vote together nationally so that all these states with expressive voting that wasn't just first past the post, which is what they call the one-on-one situation we're in now, um, could have some power electorally on the national level. And so, I mean, I would support all those. We need to find more ways to expand alternatives than the two parties because the two party system just keeps putting up candidates that people want less and less. And there's no incentive for them to change that because they, they have a, a hold on forcing people to pick one of the two parties. You know, you're, you can't get on the debate stage unless you get 5% of the vote nationally or, you know, something like that. And on local politics, you can't get funding unless you get, unless your, your party gets uh, five to 10% of the vote. So, you know, especially when you're in, in these non-swing states, please vote for the, the green candidates and people like that that are outside the system. And what about like, I mean, I think it was, um, on the rise of the 2020 election, which uh, I think it was like $14.7 billion uh, were, was invested or was, was spent on the 2020 yeah. uh, election, more money than any other election cycle. I'm sure um, the next election is going to be even more. Uh, I, and I'm kind of, you know, we had mentioned it, the, the Democrats are always dangling that, uh, that carrot. It's always the next uh, election is going to be the most important um and yet, uh, all the stuff that they told us they were going to do last time, they didn't do. But hey, you know, sorry we couldn't get it done, even though we had a we had a clear majority, and we had you know two or even three sometimes of um, you know of the of the levers of, of government uh, and and power. Unfortunately, you know, the Supreme Court is for sure going to be a reactionary right wing institution for at least the next generation, which is why you know. Uh, I mean, I'm not in a swing state, so I guess it doesn't matter all that much uh, who I vote for. Um, so, yeah, I would for sure support Green or third party or anybody but the but the political elite. But I do, if I was in a swing state, I guess the, the, the difference would be I, I, I would prefer uh, a Democratic justice in the Supreme Court. Although, you know, I think even the, the new appointee by uh, Biden voted on at least one or another issue uh, with, with the Republicans. So I'll flanking some of her colleagues to the right. Um but uh, yeah, I think uh, yeah, I think we gotta you know we gotta we gotta it's it's hard to have optimism, I guess you know, and I don't want to get uh, uh, you know I don't want to get too apathetic, you know. I, I think that the change is you know change is going to be slow, and we got to keep fighting, and it's always an uphill battle, you know, on the left. Um, but you know, I think there's I think there's like the let's talk about some positive stuff, and maybe the economic system and the. What is it? The red hot labor summer. So I just had a labor organizer and union activist uh, on two nights ago. He said we're in an unprecedented, unprecedented um, era of unionization across the country. Um, you know, we're finally fighting back in this one-sided class war uh, against um, you know the corporate elites and the corporations and these hierarchies that dominate the society. So that's a good thing. I mean, I'm all for co-ops. I really, you know, in my political philosophy is anarchist. So uh, I, I'm a, you know, I'm a leftist. I'm a socialist. I'm an anti 
statist branch socialist. So, like, I oppose, you know, the centralized state. I'm not a Marxist or a communist, at least uh, at least communism in practice. What I want to see is, uh, is anarcho-syndicalism is my favorite uh, kind of um, political philosophy, where society is organized around democratically structured institutions and workplaces. I think co-ops are a good start. Um, the union activist Nate Went he had described that there's a lot of different co-ops, a lot of different types of unions. Um, you could have consumer co-ops and community co-ops, or you know, worker-owned co-ops. But the way I bo- it boils down to me, and the way I see socialism uh, at its foundation is workers should own and control, you know, the means of con- uh, production. Those who work in the factories ought to own it, uh, or ought to own them. So uh, I think there's a lot of good things happening right now in the economic system and the fight against, uh, um, you know, concentrated wealth and power and the, and the corporations are the vehicle uh, for the capitalist class to, you know, kind of extract wealth from the population. Uh, but what say you about the, was it the red hot labor su- summer and all this organizing going on yeah. and fighting back against uh, corporations? Do you see some, some positives and some things to be excited about? I really see it as our, it is, it is a, uh, the one positive glimmer of hope and it's where we have our power. It's how we get more socialist programs. It's how we get more power back as the middle and working class. The uh, Occupy movement kind of was the, the spawn of, of us seeing that we can, hey, we can organize again. You know, it's been since the 60s where we had big mass organization of people. And so we took that and, uh, you know, obviously that was about, about Wall Street first and income inequality. Um, and Bernie harnessed that movement. And, and fed into it and educated a lot of the public on on what needs to happen. And even though there's there's a, a big effort to crush that movement, we're, we kind of got lucky in a way, which is, and this is unfortunate, but um, the, the government has so much, in, we have so much inflation right now. So the government's method to cool inflation is to try to increase unemployment. You know, as much as Biden's out here claiming success for all these jobs, their administration is trying to kill jobs. They're trying to lower, they, they don't want us having so many options. Um, so they jack up interest rates and that that keeps businesses from spending. And that's the theory, you know, and this is, this is how they fight inflation. Uh, but um, because of COVID and, and what's happened in the last few years, the workforce has shrunk. You've got a lot less workers. And, and so there's still demand for workers. And as much as they keep trying to cool it, they can't lower, they're, they're not increasing unemployment like they want to, which, which keeps us in power. So we, and they're not, it, it, this is only going to get worse. I mean, we didn't get into COVID much and I don't really want to, but this is going to get worse and, and keep going on for, for a while. So you know, you, you see that strikes beget strikes. Union wins beget union wins. You know, if, if you're a group right now with uh, 500 employees somewhere and you look over and you're like, holy crap, UPS workers, you know, they're making $170,000 now, you know, I mean, that's not everybody, but yeah. you see all these wins and you see all these, uh, you, you don't hear about losses. There aren't losses. They're always getting something out of it. You know, there, there are no organizations fighting that, have severely lost. Now we can talk about part of the problem with some of these unions is that they've been co-opted too, you know, yeah. so that that's exactly these, these what corp- Nate was saying. And that's exactly what yeah, they, a lot of these, they, 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 uh, side up with the, with the corporations and, uh, you know, 
they, uh, you know, they get, they get layers of management and hierarchy and, you know, uh, wealth inequality within these unions as well. And the, the structure is very similar. It's, it's a class structure within a class, within a working class structure. But that, that is what happens. And so, you know, we really need to ensure that the rank and file keep their power. We need rank and file committees formed within these unions so that people have a seat at the bargaining table. You know, there's, there's example after example of it recently of unions touting these big victories. But, you know, if you actually pull the people that, that are getting the, uh, you know, the workers for these groups, well, they didn't support the move that their union leaders made. And, and so you're seeing a lot more of that. And it's just the system is so corrupt and, and capitalized that it's inevitable that that capital is going to try to hold on to power. So they're going to find ways to corrupt these unions. And, and so, you know, the, the more wins we get, the more corrupt some of these groups are going to be. And we have to watch out for that. So, like, take the, the National Nurses United, which was a a really aggressively progressive group that backed Bernie in, in 2016 and 2020. Um, they never would have came out and endorsed Biden this early. And so a month ago, that group now endorsed Biden. And, you know, here's a group that's also lobbying that we still need to have mass in healthcare. The healthcare workers aren't getting protections. And instead of leveraging that to fight for some of that stuff, instead of leveraging their endorsement to fight for some of this stuff now, they're falling in line and pre-endorsing the guy. So, you know, and their members don't support that. Their members are actually completely out there uh, in alignment with how I feel about the situation, but they're, they're also joining the actors picket strike at the picket strikes. There's solidarity across all these groups. Um, so I, I, we have a lot of power there for, for a long time to come. Solidarity forever. All right, let's talk about uh, as a Twitter big shot, as a Twitter celebrity, as a as the face of the left. Uh, no, but for real, uh, you, you know, you got a pretty big following. Uh, you know, you got some media uh, engagements and all that kind of stuff. You're getting out there. What what kind of what was your track to get into? You know, leftist politics. Um, what motivated you? Um, you know, and you're, you're an author now, uh, a podcaster. Uh, maybe talk about uh, the rise of Pat the Burner. God forbid I'm a pod. I, I thought I'd never be a podcaster, man. The podcaster <laughs> class is its own thing. Um, yeah, so, you know, I, I came to support Bernie initially. My account was just this account that uh, I shared political cartoons and added my little punch to it, which I thought it, it was grew pretty quickly because it was kind of a way to to put a little asterisk on whatever the, uh, the author of the comic already, you know, created. So anyway, that that grew my following. Um, there was this guy, Peter Dow, who some people may know, who, um, was known as, as one of the most, I, I hate to use the word shit lib, but like he was a real propagandist under Hillary and, uh, they, they pushed the vote blue, no matter who a lot. Basically they, he was paid to smear progressives online. And so he was an easy target. So I said, you know, I'm going to give this this uh this is shot so anyway i created a parody account called peter douche instead of peter <laughs> dow <laughs> um and then i got tweeted out by some by uh julian assange and then that got me on the jimmy Dore show and then on the jimmy Dore show i had an idea i'm like you know i can uh i'm gonna write a book 
this guy is such a shitbag that I'm going to write a book. So I wrote a book called An Inconvenient Douche. And uh, it was basically just parroting him, um, you know, sucking up and trying to convert people to the Democratic Party, despite all the facts that progressives had the right arguments um, on their side. So long story short, that, that got me into parody, which I never thought I would do, never thought I would be a writer. Um, but, you know, the good news is after all that, he's the one shining example of somebody who went from being a centrist propagandist guy to converting to our side. So, you know, I'd like to take some credit in that, but, you know, he, he was such an obvious target that uh, it was going to happen eventually anyway. Well, he was going to he was going to either remain the, the target or. Or see his ways, but he's a, he's a strong ally now. He uh, he was working for Marion Williamson for a while. Uh, he and I made peace, so you know it's 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 a crazy world. There's there's hope for some people, I guess. Do you have more uh, projects as an author? Uh, so yeah, so then I also uh, co-wrote another book, which was the Yas Queen Chronicles, which was a, a fictional resistance forum back when the, the resistance movement was big, like you know. Stop Trump at all costs, but ignoring their the uh, the flaws on the left. The same the same stuff they're telling you now. Like yeah. it, now's not the time to talk about all those problems within our own party. You know, so I, it was a book about this forum where people were on stage talking about politics. If you, if you see those going around, but uh, I I used the parody as as a a way to point out in a in a lighthearted way stuff that. Um, Maybe maybe shake people up in a way that they wouldn't get if you just told them the facts. And I think that's the value of parody sometimes. And the reason I, I kind of hate parody at the same time is that there are so many parody accounts that just go for quick jokes. They're not, they don't have a purpose. And right. so that's kind of what drew me to do it. I, I knew I could do it differently. I mean, my whole goal is expanding leftist politics. So everything I've ever done is that's what I've got in mind. So. Yeah, and I think you know education is a is a very important thing, uh, and I think there's a big difference between being, you know, a vulgar propagandist. Obviously, the world is so serious sometimes, though, that we we definitely need humor. But even sometimes, the world is so absurd that it uh, it parodies it parodies itself. It's it's getting even more difficult, especially in the era of Trump and post Trump. Uh, it's almost even hard to parody uh, just because of the absurdities uh, that some of these people uh, that get in office say uh, and do even. Um, yeah. You, you think you're going to continue to to write books? Did you were you a writer um, before? Like, kind of how how did that come in, into being? You just you saw an opportunity and you went for it. Yeah, you said it. I mean, I just. Uh... You know, I knew I had a following with with the, the parody account. I had maybe 60,000 people following me, and I knew I was getting invited on the shows to talk about uh, politics for the first time. And I just said, "The hell with it, let's do it." And and uh, did it. It was it. You know, it connected me to a lot of leftists. So I'm I'm really I don't want to say well connected because that's kind of weird, but like. I have access to at least, you know, send an email to a lot of leftist people that are, that have some power within the media, you know, not that I don't have that power. We don't, our show, you know, we, we just have fun on our show and try to give people the news in a way that's not too painful. Like it's kind of our goal. Like the people that are burned out, if you're burned out on watching a podcast, you know, we drink beers, do shots and, and keep it light as light as possible. So 
outside of uh, outside of the Punch Up Pod, do you do uh, speaking engagements? And do you are you a regular guest on any other? Like you said, the Jimmy Dore show. I don't really watch too many, you know, leftist pods. Yeah. Uh, it's being being busy, but yeah, do you have like a regular rounds that you do? You know, I used to do uh, a few shows regularly. I, I kind of burned out on all of it, to be honest. And right when I burned out on it, that's when Lila hit me up to do my own podcast. <laughs> so I've kind of hit my peak. But uh, as far as activism goes, I, I do a lot, you know, whatever I can. I've never said no to any group that's asked me to come out and, and speak. And I've, I've spoken a few times. I'm not a natural public speaker, so it's 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 always awkward for me to do it. But uh, I still just suck it up and do it. Um, like when I was on the Jimmy Dore show, that that got me some attention by the comedian cycle. And, and a lot of them had followed the Peter, Peter douche account. <laughs> and so I got asked to do stand up comedian, which really? I'm, an in, I'm an introvert, but I went and did a couple shows with uh, Ron Placone and Graham Elwood, um, which was awkward as all hell. But uh, Hey, I checked that box, man. I sacrificed. That was, that was painful for me so, and the audience. Probably. You did. So you did some stand up comedy an introvert doing some stand up comedy. The most unnatural thing on earth. Yeah. yeah. Where did you get uh, your inspiration, your material? I'm interested in this. Uh, do you think it went well? Like, honestly, you know, you think it went well? I, it seems like you're hard on yourself. Uh, but, you know, did you get some laughs? Was it a good experience? On the stand-up side, uh, you know, it was both his groups, both the groups that I went to, it was called the Progressive Comedy Tour. So you could not have a friendlier audience, yeah, you know? So yeah. it's, it's really hard to judge, but... I learned from it that I could do it. Like I learned where I wasn't hitting and, and I learned some of the dynamics of, Oh, this is what it takes to actually be good at this, even though I wasn't. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was a good experience, but it's, you, you have to be really prepared. And I, I was like, so nervous about it. I was like, you know what? I'm going to wing it more than be prepared. I'm going to sort of have my notes and that's not the way you got to yeah. have it dialed. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's, but uh, but anyway, even that, you know, as 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 painful as it was for me to personally do as an introvert, I got to meet in person, you know, a hundred progressive people that I knew some of, but yeah. hadn't met in person. So it's it's really some good solidarity when you, you go to any sort of progressive lefty thing. How did you write your your bits and stuff? You wrote some stuff on like some note cards and practiced. Uh, in front of a mirror. I mean, this is this is interesting to me. Yeah, this is cool. I've never yeah. done anything like that. I mean, I respect comedy, you know, and it, it's kind of tough to do and and to say things uh, that are interesting, you know, and, and to, to kind of toe the line uh, with the political correctness and you don't want to offend people. Um, so comedy is, you know, it's an art form. Um, you know, it sounds uh, it sounds very challenging. So yeah, how how did you how did you get your bits? How did you get your material? Did you get any input from your friends and stuff, or did you do it all on your own? Uh, you know, I just did it myself. I, I just, I had had a couple of years doing the parody count experience. They gave me a lot of experience and, and sort of how to craft things. Uh, the only difference is that was in character. So how do you translate to somebody as yourself yeah, yeah. versus speaking this way in character? Um, but, you know, the, the targets were the same. So a lot of it was just sort of finding a way to use kind of concepts I'd used before and, and a little different flavor on it so would you say you know you're kind of like a leftist uh public figure now you know i mean you're you're the biggest you have the biggest following of anyone i have have had on uh uh so far i mean is this is this going to be you know 
It's just, you know, I, I, I read a lot of Chomsky, read a lot of Chomsky, listen to his lectures all the time, but he kind of said, you know, once you dip your toe into activism, it can consume your whole life. So, you know, how did right. how did you get in, involved with activism and leftist politics? And, uh, you know, is this is this kind of a, is this a lifestyle for you moving forward? Oof. Uh, you know, I, I can't, I've always been connected to following the politics closely. So before I was even drawn in by the Bernie movement, you know, I, I really would read a lot of political articles. No matter what happens, I can't stop reading. I can't stop chiming in and having an opinion. So I think just having a bigger platform just gives you a little more people see your opinion. It, it, you know, I'm lucky enough to come on a show like yours or Jimmy Dores, who I don't even politically agree with anymore or, you know, yeah. a number of people, but um, it's it's easy to burn out. I think I think how I'm lucky compared to some people is I, and this is even then Lila, my co-host. I compartmentalize things pretty pretty well, so like I could put down politics and turn on the TV for an hour and not not soak over the pain of the people I was just talking about an hour ago. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, people who have a different kind of empathy can't like they, they need to just stop following politics for a while or, or you know, uh, they, they need to manage burnout in a way that I don't like I, I'm. I'm equipped in a strange way to handle a lot of awful news because I can almost turn it off and just go to something else for a while. But I understand why people do burn out on it. So what outside of uh, outside of politics? What's some of your interests? Now we're going to get to the just kind of Q and A stuff. Let me get to some questions here, some funny ones, some random ones. Let's learn a little bit about Pat the Burner. So outside of yeah. outside of politics, where do you like to spend your time? Oh man, I've had I've had a weird life. Uh, I love pool, billiards, um, playing not playing much because of the, the COVID and whatnot, but. Uh, Love pool. Used to used to actually play poker. I survived on poker for a couple of years. Don't really play that anymore. But so uh, that's your job, poker player. Well, it's a long story, but okay. Th- this is this is what radicalized me initially. I worked for Earthlink, which was an internet company, and I was uh, kind of on the rise in management within them, lower level management stuff, but. Uh, they sort of became an evil company. They went from the dot com, like, hey, everything's great. Here's a yogurt machine, you know, next to your desk and yeah. all that stuff to yeah. like, hey, we're we're pure evil. And uh they wanted me to train employees that were gonna replace mine, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And so I saw that transition and it really made me look at corporations in a different way. You know, I saw their motives didn't match with everybody's. Uh, their employees' motives that they lied to them, and that you know, it was just used cars in a different way. But uh, so anyway, I saw that I saw that coming. I saw that they were going to close our our office where I worked way in advance before it was ever made public, or even any of the employees knew. So I saved my money up, um, ended up playing poker online for like two years to pay the bills, and uh, you know it. That's another thing you burn out. It's not a very social thing. It's it, introverts yeah. probably shouldn't do that because you're introverted enough already, and now you're yeah. sitting on a computer and whatnot. Anyway, um, I, I like any sort of competitive games. I'm very competitive as a person. 
So uh, you ever go out to Vegas and try your luck? Uh, you know, it's it's some real money poker tables or any tournaments or anything like that. Uh, you know, I I mostly played online because when I went online, it was it was peak. Uh, World Series of Poker on ESPN. Chris Moneymaker, right? This is how I got into it. Yeah. This is right around See? the same time. I, this is, uh, this is uh, around the time when I got big into it, high school, college. I read uh, Doyle Brunson's Super System. Oh, yeah. Phil Hellmuth. Uh, everybody was Paul. obsessed. So you played too? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, you know, I played a little bit online. I played in college. Yeah. Uh, nothing more than like a $50 game or anything like that, you know? Yeah, so... So I took advantage of that movement. So my so history. You were a uh, Oldham player, I'm guessing. That's what I was at least mostly. Oldham in Omaha. Omaha yeah. high low too. Um, but what I did, so anyway, my background before that, I went to college at UC Davis. During college, I worked at a casino. I was a blackjack dealer. Um, so and I learned to, to deal all the games, worked, lived in Tahoe for six or seven years doing them all. So anyway, I went to this job, got burned out, went and played poker. And it was at that time when everybody was like taking their shot at playing poker. Oh yeah. And so even the people that really knew how, how to play Hold'em, they didn't know tournament poker. They didn't know these quick sit and go tables where there's 10 people online and the top three get paid. So I, I mastered how to make sure I made money every freaking time. You gotta be patient, right? You kind of, you kind of gotta be patient. And when you got the cards, you play them. Uh, but it's a lot of kind of sitting around being patient, not to be, not to be too aggressive with your yeah. chips, right? Right. And people that were really drawn to the, to the sport for the first time and, and trying online were watching ESPN highlights of all the dramatic moves all the time. Yeah. Like the big bluffs. Everyone wants to make a big right. bluff with no cards. You know, that's which, how it works too much. Which is why if you just sat back and were conservative, you were almost a lock. Yeah. Get a couple bucks. But anyway, I, I was able to coast on that for a while until I figured out what I wanted to do and then went back to school. That was, uh, there was the, the one guy, um, I forget. He was in like all the last tables. He was just super, super conservative. There's actually a, an MIT course online, uh, open courseware, which I'm all about. I'm all about the free uh, sharing right. of information. But there's actually an MIT course, two of them actually, I think, on how to play poker and, and right. you know, kind of talking about the different styles. Uh, and a lot of people, um, you know, like the loose, aggressive style, which is kind of how I was. I would just throw chips right. out there just to make some bets. Holy uh, people. Holy people a little bit. And, and it works yeah. really well if you want to get a, a big yeah. chip lead. But, you know, you're yeah. either out early or you got a nice chip lead and you can just kind of bully people. Yeah. Um, but it tends to be, you know, the conservative uh, player that only plays when you got Cards um, tends to right. do well, and that's not really a lot of fun. You're going to sit at t- poker tables for hours and hours, and some people are probably going to know, like, oh, this person's betting. They probably got something. I'm going to stay away. So that's not yeah. too fun, you know, but, I mean, that, that's kind of how you have to, especially if, if you have people coming in trying to bluff you and win the and win the tournament or win the table within the first hour. If you're able to sit around for a few hours, you can, you know, kind of make some money at the, uh, at, yeah. at the table. Um Let's talk about burnout here real quick. And I just have a few other questions here, and then we'll cut it. Um, yeah, no what, what about you know what, what keeps you motivated? What's your what's your inspirations? How do you how do you manage the burnout burnout with the political system and all the problems? Uh, and they are numerous, uh, you know, in society today. Um, you know what what keeps you motivated to you know to be a leftist? As I kind of say, leftist politics is you know rooting for the underdog constantly. It's always an uphill battle. Uh, it's always a class war. 
usually the class war is one sided. Uh, it's only you know it's only a, a class war violent uh, when you know working class people actually fight back, which is rare. It's usually a one sided uh, endeavor. But yeah, what, what keeps you inspired and motivated uh, in, in leftist politics, even though sometimes it looks bleak out there? Oof. I mean, I think I think the fact that I know I have the stomach for it. <laughs> You know, I know I'm equipped to do it and uh, and stay in the game is a big part of it. And I look around and like my best friend, for example, has had uh, terminal cancer for a couple of years and she's had to work. You know, the, she's she's just quitting her job next month and, you know, she's making 100 grand a year at her job. But if she quits, she has to go on disability and she barely able to be able to survive. And you'd have to pay for your own health care out of pocket. And we're yeah. talking, you know. Uh, she's a legal secretary at a well-known big law firm and, and just seeing the, how knowing the facts about things, I think you can't turn it off at some point. Like when you know what's wrong with our healthcare system, I just feel compelled to to stay in the game and, and keep talking about it. And I also see a lot of, a lot of people on the left, some of us that were there this whole time, you know, on the Twitter version of left, uh, social media side of things ex-social yeah we i mean i think i i'm really turned off by a lot of the people out there in the media on the left online and yeah. a lot of it is grift and a lot of it is people trying to make a career out of it which in itself isn't grift necessarily what is grift uh, i see these words i'm i'm, I'm a little bit oblivious with some of the stuff what's what's grift mean i've seen it a lot it's just like someone that's kind of acting like they're on the side of the left, but it's not really. I mean, grift implies a little disingenuous. Disingenuous. Okay. On my, in my use of it, but you know, it, there's nothing wrong with having a podcast and having a, a GoFundMe or Patreon or, yeah, you know, yeah. ways to, because we do need to support independent media on the left. We, we need a big voice on the left, but I think that voice needs to be honest. And I think, like for COVID, for example, for me. Wait, real quick, let me drop my Patreon. No, I'm just kidding. I don't have <laughs> any of that stuff. Go ahead. No, and like, you know, I come from kind of a weird place with it in that I do sell my books, but like I did sell my books. But if you did the math on how much money I made on the books, it's less than a minimum wage job, you know? Yeah. So it's it's kind of like it's the minimalist. I'm getting, I'm not getting, I'm not making, I couldn't make a career out of it, you know, unless I changed my tact and, and and did something different but anyway so for me like i'm good not making a lot of money and surviving on on what i can get by on which which uh sorry my cat just stepped on the keyboard i got a kitten here <laughs> change my language switching okay that's great i don't know what that's gonna do but uh, but anyway so i'm i think i come from like i've had you know, the high paying job. I've seen the corporate side of the thing. I've been on the wrong side of the corporate stuff too. Right. And I've, I've been on the, the dirt poor left, yeah. but I'm also, I'm also comfortable enough with a family support system to not have to rely on, you know, government programs or something. Right. I just feel like I have a, a voice that can shine some light on this stuff in a way that needs to be heard along with a million other people. Like I'm nothing. Yeah. Yeah. In this game. I, so anyway, I just need to contribute. It's, look, if someone pulled my mic and I couldn't do any of this anymore, I, I wouldn't care. I'd just yeah. be more annoying at parties. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I saw a funny meme that was like, uh, I'm not going to be political at this next party. And there was like uh, Lennon in a, in a room with his hand up in the air. And there's, I forget what, that's a funny meme though. It's like, you know, me after three drinks, you know, I'm saying I'm right. not going to get political. But um, yeah, I think we're all just, we're all in this system uh, alone. We can do absolutely nothing. Uh, and at the end of the day, most of us are just trying to get by and have a, have a nice time on earth, I guess, you know. So let me get to, let's get to some questions. Uh, speaking of which, uh, what's the meaning of life? What's the meaning of life here? That's kind of what oh. I was getting to. You know, what are we doing here? What, what, what was doing the here? Uh, what was the was it number three or something? And then the uh, forty seven or something. Yeah, I didn't see that. Forty seven. The Adams. Yeah. The book. I forget that. But uh, honestly, I I mean I I don't think there is. I think that's what it comes down to. I think it's find the purpose, find something that makes you happy to get through this. But you know. There's joy in helping other people and lifting other people up, and it kind of builds a. I don't believe in karma, but it it, believe, it builds you up as a person, knowing that you're doing good things for people. So, like helping others, if there's something that makes you happy, go do it. Unless it's not hurting other people, uh, find what makes you happy and do it. You know, that's that's it. So let's talk belief systems, religion. What is God? Who is God? Is it even a, a concept that's intelligible to us? Yeah, God is a made-up thing that doesn't exist. And uh, maybe there's some afterlife in some other form of some matrixy dream state we're in or yeah. something like that. But there's no, uh, you know, if you talk Christianity, Islam, I mean, I don't believe in any of them. I think yeah. they're, they're all not useful to society, in my opinion. We're just stardust. What created the universe? How was it created? The Big Bang? Is that is that our best guess? Is that your best guess? Sorry, you cut out there for me on this side. What what created the universe? How was the universe created? Uh, the Big Bang? Is that our is that our best guess? Is that your best guess? I got to go with Big Bang or uh, shout out to the second possibility, the symmetricy stuff again. You know, okay. maybe it's maybe it's a simulation, and there's. You know, the, the God in our simulation is just some kid at playing his Xbox and we're characters, <laughs> we're characters yeah. in his Xbox. Yeah, that is, uh, that's an interesting theory. I like that uh, simulation theory. Or a brain in a vat that goes back to Descartes. I could just be a little mad scientist putting little chemicals in right. your brain, making it appear like we're here on the uh, internet talking on a virtual meeting. Uh, <laughs> possible. Who killed yeah. JFK? Go ahead. Oh, you want to do a little simulation stuff? Oh, no, I was just going to say, like, you know, when people talk about, oh, you know, if, if I get uh, in a tragic car accident, I'll unplug me right away. And I'm like, no, no, hook me up into some AI, make me play Xbox with my tongue on some controller or something. I'm, you I'm to, good with that. You want to stay as long as possible. I dig it. Who killed JFK? This is, this is, our, this is our quick fire here. Yeah. Uh, Jesus, I don't even follow that stuff. But, I mean, I know it's, you know, this it's an inside CIA thing. Okay. The banks, the banks, because he wanted to uh, devalue the dollar or, or, or what, something with the dollar and the banks. <laughs> Are we alone in the universe? No, we're not alone. There's definitely others. Do I believe, uh, you know, we got all these people here and all this, whatever they renamed the UFOs to, is uh, actual alien civilizations visiting us? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. 
So yeah, I think the I think the whistle I think it's a big distraction. Mostly, ninety nine percent of me thinks that it's a distraction. One percent of me wants to believe there's something else out there. Uh, what about the the whistleblowers and all that nonsense? And what do you think is going on in Area Fifty One? Do you think our government had some information that uh, we don't know about, or maybe yeah. some crafts, or maybe even some crafts, or even some uh, alien bodies? You know that crash landed here. You think you believe in any of that stuff? I, I leave it open that it's possible. I mean, I, I, the, the down the reason I say it, it probably isn't likely if I had to go there is that they can't keep a secret. No, I mean, you know, it, this shit would get out. I, I think we'd have like some substantial evidence. So more than likely, they're they're covering up something that the people don't they don't want people to know, like that you know. Maybe instead of just Russia being the enemy, we've had this other organization, an enemy that's been, you know, they've had vessels or, you know, I don't know who fucking knows. <laughs> I think it is, uh, I think it's cover for the militarization of space. Uh, we can't use Russia forever. Russia can't even conquer Ukraine. Next step. Yeah, yeah, I think it's the next step. Militarization of space. We got to prepare for the aliens. That. You know? Yeah, that. that's what I think. Who knows? Though? Where's Bigfoot hiding? How come Bigfoot's been so elusive all these years? Why can't we find him? Uh, because the people that played the first Bigfoots are all dead by now. <laughs> the, what's that? The something that the video, yeah, the, the Saperter film or something, something like that. Yeah. Right. Uh, what's your first memory? Do you have a first memory? Yeah, actually, I do. Uh, preschool. My mom coming to pick me up, and I peed my pants, and I knew I had to get up. <laughs> there I was, and we were making, and this this is this legitimately happened, and I had it for a while. They used to have the kids make uh, clay ashtrays, wow. so I was I made like an owl clay ashtray, <laughs> which I was proud of until I peed my pants. That's my earliest memory. This explains a lot. Pat. <laughs> Do you have a hidden talent? Hidden talent. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty good at, at pool, which I don't know if that's hidden. Yeah. But yeah, uh, people listening here probably wouldn't know that about you. Yeah. I mean, I could juggle. I could. I'm pretty good athletically at anything I try except for golf, which is unnatural. What's your peak of athletic prowess? Did you have a, did you have a peak where you're like, oh, man, I've made it. I'm here. This is, this is as good as it gets. I think I hit three grand slams and coach pitch. Uh, literally one year. That was as good as it got. I must have been nine or ten years old. I was like, this is it. It's not going to – three grand slams in a game, man. I was on that day. <laughs> so uh, the only sport I, I kept playing post-high school was soccer. But in an adult uh, – we just did a – I played an adult soccer league. But we had a match, and I was probably 30 at the time. We had a match with the local high school kids. And I was – set on their track star and I guarded their track star. So I, I'm going to call that my Pete because he complimented me. Yeah. But but the downside is that, you know, I'm only five, eight and there was a corner ball, which is the ball that goes across to the center of the goal. And everybody tries to head it. And this guy was like standing on my head. He jumped that much higher than me. Like <laughs> I just got lucky, but yeah. I mean, being able to, to run with the kid like that uh, at that age, I was pretty proud of. Yeah. That's what uh, I had a guest on last night. I asked the same kind of question. Uh, and he he said um, they they lost fourteen nothing to a team that went on to win the state title. 
but they knew that he knew at least that, hey, we're as good as this team. They barely beat us. They needed a touchdown in the fourth quarter, you know, to, to kind of separate themselves. So sometimes just comparing yourself to some someone or something or some team that uh, is really good, knowing, hey, I at least belong there. You know, that's pretty cool. Um, what about getting – what do you think happens if you get sucked into a black hole? Do you think the wormholes connect different parts of uh, the universe together? No, I think you get uh, shredded to bits pretty much. Bits. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I might, I might, I might think so too. Um, but I, just... I do leave leave some room for string theory and you know Ooh. alternate universes and whatnot. What do you think? What do you think of like the multiverse theory? I think it's possible. I'm going to go with it. So my my only argument against the multiverse is like the universe was created. I think it, it, the teleology or etymology, I think that's like the study of words and meaning. The universe was created originally to encompass everything. And now we have to get bigger than everything. You know what I mean? I mean, I I know it kind of makes sense. Like maybe we're just this little bubble in a giant matrix of bubbles. Sure. You know, Uh, and I I don't think we're ever going to understand the complexities of our universe, let alone something bigger than our universe. So I I agree with you. The multiverse sounds like a cool idea that could even be believable, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the the universe is almost infinite, and it continues to uh, expand, you know, so uh, I don't know. It, it, starts to, it starts to blow my mind on, on size scales that are just incredible. Uh, did, I, got, I got two questions here, two questions. We'll get out of here and let you plug anything you want to plug. Did you break any laws today? Today? I'm going to go with no. No, I'm pretty... Pretty legal. I'm not. I'm, I'm all for breaking laws as long as no one's the victim. Yeah, I don't believe in. I mean, I'm glad we have laws, but like you know, if something's stupid, you don't need to enforce it all on everybody. You know, I was in a little rush today. I think I was not more than five miles over the speed limit, uh, but I, I was kind of close. Oh, time out. <laughs> I uh, I pirate all my TV. I don't know. Oh, uh oh. We're going to have agents walking in here soon. They can come. They can come. All right. Uh, last one. I, I like philosophy and stuff. Um, art, aesthetics, beauty. What's what's art? Art is anything that physical that makes you think something about it. So Does it, it doesn't... be created by human beings or can nature be an artist? Yeah, nature is an artist. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you look at Design through the years, design borrows from art. You've got uh, the golden spiral, which, you know, that's in a oh, photograph. Yeah. There are a couple spots that are, your eye is attracted to, and that, you know, goes to the Nautilus golden spiral kind of thing. And uh, I mean, you know, art borrows from the past and things around you. So and art doesn't have to be, be- I, I was an art history major in college for what it's worth. Very cool. <laughs> but uh that just makes – don't ask me anything art history because the first thing I did after a test is forget everything I learned. Yep. Yeah. I was Actually, an education guy on last night, and that was my, that was my crit, uh, critique is what's with all the tests and, um, you know, evaluations, you know, what, what so we can memorize a bunch of stuff, regurgitate it, and forget all of it in a week. What's the point of that? 100%. Yeah. Uh, tell, maybe, maybe before we finish up here, I'll give you some time to plug whatever, but tell us about – yeah, you're, you're kind of – you're going into design stuff. Um, I forgot about that. So 
uh, that's kind of what your graduate degree is going to be in. And, you know, tell, tell us about your next project, your, maybe in your professional life. What's that, get, what's that going to be all about? Uh, so I'm, I've got one semester left. I've done two-thirds of my thesis, and it's uh, industrial design, which is essentially making products. So it's a lot of uh, brainstorming and troubleshooting and experimenting and prototyping, building things, and then you need to convert it usually to some CAD drawings and get an engineer involved. But you can go make cars for somebody. You can make products, toys. You can make go work for Gillette and make their next version of the Razor. Uh, but I've been stalling on finishing because I have exorbitant student loans that I don't want to start paying them. So yeah. I'm sticking around. My, uh, my thesis is on a, uh, created a portable kayak. It's a backpack that just unfolds into a kayak for people that like to go to back, back lakes and things like that. Sounds pretty cool. Uh, we got a minute or a few more minutes to go, but, uh, the stage is yours. You want to plug anything, pat the burner, um, punch up pod, um, you know, if people like this discussion today and maybe they haven't uh, heard about you, I don't know how it'd be possible. You must have been living under a rock for the last 10 years. But, uh, no, uh, you know, where, where can people find you? Anything you want to plug? Anything you're working on? Any projects? Uh, of course, I'm going to uh, – I'll put – I'll attach it to the, the tweet tonight when I send it out and all that stuff for uh, people that want to look for you. Yeah, no worries. And I'm just a small, small fish in this whole thing, and there's a million people out there and uh... – so yeah, don't I'm not important in this picture, but uh, I'm on Punch Up Pod at YouTube, um, Punch Up Pod with my co-host Lila. We're on every Wednesday at five o'clock Pacific time, eight o'clock Eastern time, and we just uh, cover the news. We we try to cover it responsibly. Neither one of us are uh, in it for the money. We don't have a patron. We don't do anything. We don't. There's no way someone can even send us money. Um, so. I think that that's not like important to be a, a valid person on the left in the media, but for, for her and I, you know, we at least want to do that for a while. At some point, maybe we'll charge on. We're working on a project we can't quite talk about, but uh, could be a good book of sorts uh, in the future. So that that's a couple months from now, but just uh, instead of following me, I say, just tune in to the strikes around you. Check out ballot initiatives, which is another place we have some power, which is people petitioning to get things on the ballots and uh, support the strikers. Solidarity. Thanks, my friend. I really appreciate your time tonight. Amen. Likewise. Appreciate it. Have a great night. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Necessary Illusions. I want to thank my special guest, Patrick Cody, a.k.a. Pat the Burner, author and co-host of the Punch-Up Pod. We had a great conversation, and I really enjoyed his perspective on politics and society. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. No gods, no masters. I'm out.
Thank you.